and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar. We talk about military history from ancient times to modern, and everything in between. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Plank, author of Atlantic Wars, From the 15th Century to the Age of Revolution, published by Oxford University Press, June 19th, 2020. Thank you for speaking with me. Thanks for talking to me. So first, how did you get into um, studying this subject and writing a book on it? Well, I've been, uh, you know, studying history for 25 years now. And, uh, you know, I've earlier written books on Nova Scotia and on the British Empire as a whole and on Quaker abolitionism. And with all of those topics, I was uh, studying things that crossed national boundaries and imperial boundaries involving people on various sides of the ocean. And so, like many people, I've become, you know, interested in stories that cross the ocean and looking at the Atlantic as a whole. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is that uh, there's a common theme through all of my work, and I didn't start out my career thinking I wanted to be a military historian, mm -hmm. which is kind of bizarre when you think of where I started. But uh, um, but wars defined uh, the stories I was telling, you know, about the expulsion of the Acadians in Nova Scotia or the Quaker debate about slavery. And so uh, looking at the Atlantic as a whole and warfare in the Atlantic as a whole really brought together all of my interests. Mm -hmm. But then the other thing is that, uh, you know, there's a lot of people who've been interested in Atlantic history. There really aren't that many single authored you know, syntheses of the whole story of the Atlantic. And so I, I wanted to take that on. Mm -hmm. So considering this uh, volume covers... Uh, about 300 years and numerous countries how did you um how did you break it down and make it manageable well i'm not sure whether i would recommend this to anybody everybody but uh, <laughs> uh i wrote it out of order I, I i started with an outline of the main themes and chapters i wanted to write and then i you know wrote chapter six and then chapter three and i don't know exactly and then 11 and so forth mm -hmm. and then later pieced them all together but i wanted to um, you know, make each chapter a, a, a project. And then um, the other thing is, uh, and this really goes counter to kind of your training as an academic historian, every time I was trying to push myself into areas that I wasn't familiar with, I mean, looking at the, you know, articles and books by other people and trying to educate myself as, you know, as widely as possible. And so, you know, one of the main aims of the book was to, you know, have a comprehensive geographical scope and, uh, and uh, you know, like you say, it covers a huge amount of time. Mm -hmm. I see that it's divided into three, three main parts, warfare at sea, warfare on land, and then transatlantic warfare. Can you tell me a bit about how you approached warfare at sea? Well, warfare at sea was, uh, um, you know, one of the most important things to me about the whole book because it struck me as, one of the areas that people, you know, take for granted too quickly, uh, too often, I'm talking about historians, but I think people in general, that the whole question of European and colonial dominance of the water, it seems to me, defines both what counts as the Atlantic world and basically much of what happens afterwards. And so I wanted to put a huge emphasis on that, partly because I think it's foundational to the whole story I'm telling. Mm -hmm. um, within that section, uh, you know, there there's uh, there's a chapter on the technological development of ships, and one of my points there is is the you know formative influence of military considerations in just the basic design of European sailing ships. Mm 
and the uh, way that translates as you go through the section into uh, the whole culture of maritime life, and not just among uh, military ships, but also within fishing vessels, merchant vessels, whaling vessels. They're armed, they're uh, prepared for combat, and especially in the 16th century, whalers are sent out across the Atlantic, basically primarily for military purposes. And uh, as you go through the other sections of the chap of the other chapters in that section, you know, sailors are transferred from one kind of ship to the other. They're uh, basically, you know, their their skills are transferable from civilian to military life. And so, uh, you know, the sailors chapter is also very important because it strikes me it's really the first Atlantic community where you have people from different nations literally side by side, not necessarily enjoying each other's company, but, uh, you know, often forced to uh, to work together and to fight against each other or for each other. Um, it's a chaotic environment. And I guess that sort of, I think, sets a, a certain amount. It, it certainly profoundly influences the development of uh, Atlantic warfare, uh, you know, everywhere across the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Now, that brings to mind a question. I don't know if it's beyond the scope of what you described, but I recall being told um, that uh, piracy was the first form of democracy in the world, that, um, you know, sailors who left wherever they were and joined together as a criminal band voted for their own leaders, you know, in in contrast to what was going on within the naval military hierarchies. Did you? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not entirely convinced about that. I think partly because, uh, uh, well, I mean, even the people who argue that acknowledge how violent the life of, uh, you know, of, of, of life is for a pirate and for uh, people subjected to, uh, you know, attacks from pirates. Mm-hmm. But I'm much more on the side. There's a, you know, scholarly debate about this that the there's a fine line, and it's not always clear. What the difference is between privateering vessels who are, you know, operating with the license from their, you know, imperial governments or uh, pirates. And there are, you know, uh, narratives, which I tell in the book of, of uh, sailors who think they are going on, you know, merchant, uh, they're serving on a merchant vessel and then their captain makes the decision to either, you know, be, uh, basically to, uh, you know, take on a letter of mark and start attacking and i and i guess i would put more of an emphasis on that that there's a, a way in which men you know it's the, it's intrinsic to the whole operation of sailing vessels that you don't really have control over your fate i mean that, that uh, uh you know if the ship decides it's or the captain decides that they're going to uh, go into raiding uh you're there on the ship and there you are you're you're suddenly in uh you know in a military situation. So, yeah, so I'm not, to be honest, yeah, I guess I feel pretty strongly about that, 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 that mm. the piracy is not democratic. Hmm. Okay, interesting. So how did you, uh, why did you start uh, from the 15th century? You know, what was the um, impetus there? Well, I, it, the, the impetus there really is the the, the sailing vessels. I, I, I was, um, one of my aims in sort of telling this story the way I did was to break out of a, um, a more old-fashioned imperial narrative, which you know generally would place a pride of place on Christopher Columbus and the uh, uh, Spanish expansion uh, across the Atlantic, and uh, I wanted to. And there are various ways you can break down that narrative. I actually, in the introduction, start with the uh, Norse voyages uh, to Newfoundland and Greenland, and it matters to me a lot on the chronology that the Norse are in Greenland for you know continuously until. Uh, you know, the mid 15th century. And so there is contact between the Inuit and, uh, and uh, the Norse. 
long before uh, Columbus comes along. Mm-hmm. So I so I think it's a you know, just a matter of factual accuracy. Uh, you can't just say you know the story starts with Columbus. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, you know, at one point when I was thinking about the book, I was thinking of starting with the Norse and trying to tell a continuous story from there. But actually, the Norse experience is quite different from the whole dynamic of European expansion after they get these larger sailing vessels. Mm-hmm. And so I guess it it matters to me more that there's a contrast between the Norse experience and what follows, which is based on the, you know, the carrying capacity of uh, large sailing ships, really. Mm-hmm. And why did you end at the age of revolution? Just the <laughs> limit, word limit, or? No, absolutely not. No, no. You know, again, going back to what I was saying about sailors, but I think to a great extent it applies to, you know, all, all sorts of fighting forces uh, on land as well. Uh, before the age of revolution, there's a way in which people are caught up in battles, you know, irrespective of their political inclinations or allegiances. There are alliances that cross all sorts of imperial boundaries and uh, tie together indigenous people and people, you know, fighting to escape slavery. And uh, um, there's a whole tangle of alliances, which is central to the whole pattern of warfare I'm describing up to the age of revolution. And then I think things do change radically at the, that point that you get, you know, and, it, and I don't in the book, that's a, that is a space limitation point that it happens in naval warfare as well as land warfare that uh, sailors become, that they internalize a sense of many of them, a sense of patriotic or loyal service. They, they, uh, they begin to believe that there's a sort of discipline and duty uh, t- tied to the particular cause they're fighting for. And then, then so there's a huge change in military culture around the age of revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing, you know, the dark side of that is that it uh, is part of a process that delegitimizes those alliances I was uh, talking about earlier, mm-hmm. which leaves indigenous people who want to fight colonization or uh, enslaved people who want to, uh, you know, escape slavery on their own against uh, national governments, uh, you know, the, the, the old, more flexible pattern of uh, military action in politics mm-hmm. made it possible for people to make alliances that are no longer possible after the age of revolution. I'm speaking with Jeffrey Plank, author of Atlantic Wars. You can find more information on the Oxford University Press page for the book. If you like this podcast so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please go to my website, warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com for links to news, videos, new books, and my social media links. If you're interested in other kinds of history, you can find the links to my other podcasts and associated book lists at historyrabbithole.com. That's rabbit as in the animal, historyrabbithole.com. Thank you for your support. And now back to the podcast. Thinking about uh, warfare at sea, so the Ottomans were pretty busy in the Mediterranean, but you never hear about them sailing out into the Atlantic and and getting themselves involved in the Atlantic world the way the rest of Europe was doing. Um, Mm -hmm. Can you address that at all? I don't pose that as a 
one of my central research questions, you know, why some uh, uh, groups get into the Atlantic and others don't. Mm -hmm. um, one of the stories I tell at the uh, beginning or early on in my slavery chapter involves a, a North African raid on Iceland, uh, seizing, you know, Icelanders and taking them to North Africa uh, as uh, basically, you know, most of them die as slaves in North Africa. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, uh, and, there is, I mean, not, you know, the, the connection between the North African states and the Ottoman Empire is very, uh, uh, you know, loose, at the, you know, in the, in the early modern period. Mm -hmm. But there is a way in which Mediterranean uh, uh, patterns of, uh, of captive taking uh, spread out into the Atlantic. And something else that really surprised me when I was doing the research is that galleys actually are crossing the Atlantic. I mean, they're, they're mostly uh, uh, European galleys, not uh, North African galleys. But the uh, a lot of the technologies and practices, you know, we tend to sort of connect to, to the Mediterranean are actually spreading out into the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I should have, uh, yeah, when I said Ottomans, I should have explained that I meant everyone operating around the um the Mediterranean that was, you know, Muslim. What would you say are the um, the main events within warfare at sea? Are there any main events that you would point to as far as affecting what you researched? You mean like turning points? Yeah, either um, military actions or technology or, or any other event. You know, that's you know, the structure of the book, you know, was self-consciously meant to be thematic i mean they're describing changes uh but but each of the chapters covers a huge period of time mm -hmm. you know that, that it's it's a gradual process but that shift to larger sailing vessels is a is a critical one the uh success in putting cannons on ships is uh critical mm -hmm. there there's just a gradual uh um shift from a a pattern of warfare where, uh, you know, the aim is to board vessels to a, a much more, uh, you know, long distance, you know, artillery uh, oriented uh, pattern. Um, you know, the, the, in the 17th century, you, you move to much more towards specialized warships, which is, uh, you know, very important. Um, there, there's another turning point is, the, you know, in the British Navy, they, they captured the French warship, the Invincible, and, uh, you know, they're, they're stunned by how, uh, you know, by its size and, uh, uh, you know, capabilities, and they start redesigning their own warships this in the 1740s, mm -hmm. uh, which is critical for, you know, the ultimate, uh, the, you know, success of the British Navy. Um, I, I do think, but they, I wouldn't, you know, to be honest, this is not, I, my, my one of the purposes of this book, or I'm not arguing against a uh, view of history that sort of says this is the pivotal battle and everything was changed after that. But my, mm. I'm, I'm really not primarily interested in engaging in that. But okay. uh, uh, I do actually think that the battle battle of Tiburon Bay um, off the coast of France is, was a critical thing in, in uh, uh, 1758, mm -hmm. basically allowing the uh, uh, British to, you know, up until that time, the British are not, you know, dominant the way we kind of, uh, you know, retrospectively think, oh, you know, the British uh, Navy is the most you know, powerful Navy in the world. Mm -hmm. But it did make a huge difference. And then there are a sequence of, uh, of um, you know, surprising British amphibious operations in, uh, uh, you know, Louisbourg and then Canada and then uh, in the Caribbean and, um, and in Cuba, 
it's, it's startling, actually, how uh, quickly and for that period of time, how effectively the British can use their ships to you know, really shift things in North America. Um, yeah, that, that, that's a point that's been made before. But uh, yeah, my, my, the cover of my book has a picture of the Battle of Kibberin Bay. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it seems that as far as warfare at sea, indigenous populations that were impacted by what happened seemed more, at, at least at sea warfare, seemed to be more observers than participants at all as far as the major powers fighting over the Atlantic? Well, I, I think it, you have to make a, a, a be careful to make the distinction between sailors and people in commands of ships. Okay. Uh, and because, uh, uh, you know, going back, um, you know, to the 16th century and the Spanish in the Caribbean, they are using, uh, using their employing uh, indigenous Americans as pilots. And there are, episodes from that early period of indigenous Americans seizing Spanish ships and actually sailing them across the Caribbean. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I tell another story in the, uh, in the book of a um, Mi'kmaq uh, 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 people who are identified as pirates who seize uh, a ship in uh, off the coast of Nova Scotia. And then, you know, after they've seized this ship, they begin to think that their only way they can survive is to uh, start, you know, a sequence of seizing further ships. So I, I guess there are a couple of points I would like to make about that. One is that there's nothing intrinsically difficult about controlling a ship or doing the work of, uh, of sailing. And you have indigenous Americans uh, working on ships through the whole period. Uh, um, different communities are more uh, familiar with it than others. But then, so... Yes, there are indigenous Americans uh, sailing. The problem is that they don't have access to port facilities. They can't maintain uh, ships. Um, and so the, the the command infrastructure and the logistics that you would need to keep ships on the water is basically, you know, uh, barred. They, they can't reach it. They can't access that uh, capital or the, that infrastructure. And that's why they you know, retrospectively seem like they're bystanders in the, uh, in this, you know, in the story of naval warfare. Hmm. So let's turn to a uh, warfare on land. Um, do you yeah. talk about mostly warfare in the new world or do you also include, uh, the old world? Um, how do you approach that? Yeah, well, I, no, I definitely talk about warfare in Europe and Africa as well as, uh, the Americas. Um, it's a, uh, um, uh, you know, the, the balance of the book is probably, I mean, probably half of that section is about the Americas. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, uh, uh, but it's important. You know, you need to know what's happening in Europe and Africa, uh, to make any sense of, uh, of what's happening in the Americas, which is, I guess, again, the point, uh, uh, that the, of doing Atlantic history as opposed to doing, uh, you know, colonial history in the Americas. Mm -hmm. So again, I would ask, as in uh, warfare at sea, um, how much were indigenous peoples observers to what was going on versus participants? I know there's a lot more combat with indigenous populations, um, but uh, if you could comment on that. Well, they were, uh, the indigenous Americans were central to the whole, you know, the whole military experience. Now, now one point, which I guess is maybe related to the question you were just saying with one very peculiar exception, indigenous Americans are only fighting on land in 
North and South America and the Caribbean. They're not coming to Europe. But in one uh, particular episode, uh, they the indigenous Brazilians are actually brought by the, the Dutch from Brazil to Africa in a grand scheme with the idea that uh, that they had you know, just superior uh, uh, warrior ability in a uh, you know in a terrain without roads and uh, uh, fighting people who uh, you know uh, were thought from the Dutch perspective to be fighting in a savage manner or whatever. So the Dutch believed they needed their own, uh, you know, imported uh, uh, warriors who were skilled in that kind of fighting, um, which is I, actually I think it's an important, uh, uh, you know, episode to, just to it brings out, uh, you know, something that is, it, you know, you can see in the European documents, you know, through this whole period, a sense that uh, um, indigenous American warriors have skills that Europeans don't have. Yeah, they're often described as being able to, you know, crouch more quietly or jump more nimbly or, uh, yeah, go for longer periods without food or water. There are all sorts of, uh, you know, stereotypes that develop, which on the one hand reflect uh, a sense of European vulnerability in the Americas, mm-hmm. uh, but they also lay the groundwork for racial stereotypes that should know, continue, you know, beyond the early modern period. Mm-hmm. Um, do you talk about much about um, warfare at sea and warfare on land in regards to Africa, the West African coast? Yes, definitely. Uh, you know, I, one of the big themes, which is why the book is divided uh, you know, into sections on sea and on land, mm-hmm. is that uh, uh, you know that there's a very stark pattern of European dominance of the deep ocean and European weakness, uh, you know, perceived weakness. Um, on the continents of North and South America and uh, Africa, and it's it's I think it's it's more pronounced in the African case than it is even in the the American cases. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm following here the lead of John Thornton, the historian of Africa, who basically, um, you know, quite rightly, you know, pushed back against an old idea that the Europeans didn't uh, move into Africa in large numbers because of disease. Uh, you know, there were Europeans and, you know, Portuguese and Angola who, you know, could survive fine. I mean, some died and some didn't, but the disease does not explain why the Europeans did not establish large colonies in Africa in the 17th, 18th century. Mm-hmm. The reason they didn't is because they were pushed out, uh, because the Africans were fighting them and successfully defending, um, their own, uh, uh, you know, territories against possible. Let me put this, even putting it like that is wrong because the, there was there are very few attempts on the part of Europeans to establish large colonies in Africa, but that was a large part of the reason for that is because the Europeans were afraid of military resistance if they tried. Mm-hmm. Well, I get the impression that definitely between um, the indigenous people of America versus African nations, that African nations had forts, had more modern militaries. Um, mm-hmm. Is that correct? I think that's correct. Yeah, and and uh, uh, you know, there's there is a sort of way you can frame that debate. You were asking, you know, do I talk about Europe? But there's a model of sort of you know military revolution that uh, the the model comes from Europe, and and you know, military historians have you know argued about whether you can apply it to Africa. But you certainly do see in you know places like Dalmi 
the development of states with huge fortifications and uh, you know uh, uh, you know armies with uh, you know real discipline using firearms in, in ways that do resemble very much the uh, uh, European pattern. Mm-hmm. And when I said modern, I meant contemporary to the age to what Europeans were yeah. using and doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Do you differentiate at all between the North and South Atlantic in any way? Is there anything important as far as dividing it up that way? You know, I, I could do, I could have done more with that. I think, uh, you know, that's a good point. Uh, it sort of runs through the, the book. It's not an organizational uh, difference. Mm-hmm. Um, that I, as I, I was telling you when I was talking about chronology, it matters to me a great deal that there is this long history of contact in the Arctic um, uh, that is interrupted perhaps briefly in the uh, second half of the uh, 15th century. But, that if, you know, I'm, I'm saying something obvious here, uh, you know, that uh, African slavery doesn't reach the Arctic on a large scale. So they're, they're you know, the, the, the players are different in the, uh, you know, the far North Atlantic. And obviously that makes a huge difference. But, uh, you know, the, I guess my, I would rather than, you know, try and draw a line through the Atlantic and say, well, down there the story is this and then up there the story is that. I, I think what interests me more is the way that individuals and, uh, you know, events cross uh, between different parts of the, um, the Atlantic. And I tell the story of one uh, man who was uh, held in this, as a slave in the Caribbean and is brought to uh, um, Denmark, ends up uh, fighting for the Danish Navy, and then uh, after they try to re-enslave him, he ends up escaping to Iceland. And so, you know, it, it, that that's one example, but there are others, you know, uh, uh, you know, on a more highfalutin scale, Martin Frobisher uh, serves in, uh, you know, West Africa and then ends up leading a expedition into Labrador, uh, that, there are, that, that, that people are moving all over the Atlantic, including moving from the north uh, to the south and the south to the north. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've read discussions about how uh, the development of racism, um, that yeah. maybe it wasn't so much, you know, early history didn't have as much racism, but then it, start, it developed in, in this period, um, sort of. Mm-hmm. Do you have any comments about um, that that issue or do you discuss it in the book? I do discuss it in the book, and uh, um, I, there's, you know, I, when I was uh, earlier talking about the stereotypes that get associated with warriors, mm-hmm. um, you can see a sort of sense of, uh, you know, almost, you know, well, a very stark sense of alienation from uh, uh, on the part of European observers in relation to the warriors they're encountering. And sometimes, as I said, they feel ter- terribly uh inferior to the people they're seeing. Sometimes they see these uh, warriors and think that these are you know, people we need and we need to establish allies. But, the, but that sense of difference is stark uh, and stark from the beginning. Um, what happens or gets more intense over the period I'm describing is that uh, there are a couple of points to be made here. It's not just about the way they fight. Uh, you know, their, their, their military abilities, but also uh, perceived atrocities and different, uh, you know, uh, military practices like, like uh, you know, scalping or uh, torture or the killing of prisoners. Um, there, there, there's this kind of list of indictments that European observers uh, uh, put on uh, Africans and indigenous Americans, which certainly 
play an important role in the developing of uh, racial stereotypes. There's also, on the other hand, practices that the Europeans engage in, which uh, terrify and alienate uh, indigenous Americans and Africans. And one of the ones that I emphasize in the book, because I do think it's a, you know, it's, it's critically important, uh, um, is rape. That uh, you know, indigenous Americans, certainly in North America, appear to uh, have, uh, you know, a, a, you know, a, a strong taboo against uh, sex in a military context, and uh, European soldiers don't. Mm. So the, this, you know, people talk about a clash of cultures uh, intensifies that sense of alienation between different communities. Mm. But something changes in the revolutionary era, which is that uh, people in the period I'm mostly writing about still make alliances across these boundaries and to a certain extent see them as useful politically and uh, economically to kind of work together in the context of this sense of of antagonism or alienation or you know strangeness when you get to the revolution the european version of all the colonial history that's come up to that point changes and there's a way in which indigenous american and african efforts to you know assert themselves become associated with a very peculiar kind of savagery and and it's sort of the idea of uncrossable boundaries and they live in their own worlds and they can fight in their own way but they're not but we're not going to engage with that i think that that sense of seeking to completely distance uh indigenous warriors is a is something that develops in the um in the revolutionary era i'm speaking with jeffrey plank author of atlantic wars you can find more information on the oxford university press page for the book if you like this podcast so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please go to my website, warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com for links to news, videos, new books, and my social media links. If you're interested in other kinds of history, you can find the links to my other podcasts and associated book lists at historyrabbithole.com. That's rabbit as in the animal, historyrabbithole.com. Thank you for your support. And now back to the podcast. Before I turn to uh, ask how you did your research, are there any other themes or significant issues that we haven't touched on yet that you'd like to mention? Yes, I, the, the one thing I wanted, you know, because we were we were kind of walking through the uh, the sailing section, mm -hmm. and uh, I, I just would want to nail down how important it was that uh, sailing ships were capable of carrying large numbers of people mm -hmm. and one of the you know it's again it's sort of a, a point that i was surprised as i i did the research how often entire colonies were evacuated and moved across the ocean uh, european basically reversing the process of colonization mm -hmm. and the spanish start to try to do that in the 1620s there's a sequence of mass evacuations that continue right up into the uh, uh the uh, mid 18th century um, and, uh, uh, you know, that idea that, uh, we don't want you here. We're going to just send you thousands of miles away is a theme that, uh, uh, that, well, it's not a theme. It's a practice that's, you know, fundamental to the whole practice of warfare in this period. And one of the things I also wanted to emphasize thinking about how this works on an Atlantic scale is that you can see a similar approach to the, 
deportation of your adversaries um, in Africa on the part of, uh, you know, warring states in Africa who basically becomes a common practice in African wars to sell their captives to the Europeans so that the Europeans can do the work of sailing them across the ocean. But uh, uh, if you think especially about what this does to the world uh, in the uh, early modern period, you you have literally millions of Africans um, getting sent across the uh, water. Uh, and, and, I, and I guess one of the things I really wanted to do in uh, the book is uh, get people to think about the slave trade as a military operation, not just a military operation, but it is clearly a military operation. And I, and, and I think when you think about slavery in that context as sort of a product of, uh, of military technologies, uh, actual fighting in Africa, uh, the, uh, the use of ships for mass deportations. I think it changes the way you look at uh, slavery in the Americas as well. Another point I, I made uh, in my chapter on slavery, which I think I, uh, yeah, I'd like to just emphasize, sure. is there's a common notion that, oh, you know, slavery is ancient. There was slavery everywhere, slavery in the Americas, slavery in Africa, slavery in Europe, at least uh, um, until the late Middle Ages. Um, the Atlantic slave trade and the whole practice of slavery in the Atlantic was quite different. And one of the ways it was new and different beyond the whole question of scale is that it favored the enslavement of men on a large scale. And, uh, and that you just uh, trying to see that yeah, sort of, that uh, that preference for men is something that most societies avoided because of military issues that are harder. You know, men are more likely to uh, you know successfully resist uh, uh, being held in slavery. Mm-hmm. It also, I think, you know, this whole military background to the slave trade goes a long way to you know explaining. The nature, or certainly the, the perception of resistance in the Americas, and the uh, not only the, the establishment of maroon communities in Brazil and uh, many parts of the Americas, uh, but also the uh, the fierce disciplinary and military responses to the threat of uh, uh, maroon uh, warfare um, in Americas. That basically, you know, you get warfare as an intrinsic part of the operation of slavery both in Africa and in the Americas. Do you have any instances in the book that discuss how indigenous people in the Americas and African slaves reacted when they met with each other, like seeing another group oppressed by Europeans, you know, maybe thinking they're the only ones and then they're brought together like, oh, we're both oppressed by Europeans. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, and it happens. And, and uh, the, the, one of the, the clearest, I mean, there are lots of examples of this, but one of the most interesting is, uh, you know, on the island of Hispaniola, very early in the uh, uh, 16th century, uh, it, what may be the first slave revolt in the Spanish Empire, I think it's in the 1520s, is an alliance with indigenous Americans who are also fighting against Spanish colonization on their island. And there, there are ways in which you can tell the story which makes it sound or makes it appear to be a slave revolt like slave revolts that you get later 
uh, in the early modern period. And then there are other ways to tell the story where it looks like it's sort of an indigenous uh, uh, operation. Archaeologists have now sort of found sites where, you know, it's clear that uh, these camps of uh, people who are resisting the Spanish are mixed communities of uh, people from Africa and uh, indigenous Americans. And there are other examples like that from Brazil in the later 16th century. But there are also plenty of examples of, uh, you know, indigenous Americans helping to capture, you know, people escaping from slavery and basically operating in alliance with colonial rulers. I mean, there, there are also plenty of examples of Africans who end up, uh, you know, cooperating with, uh, you know, European colonists. So, yeah, there it, it, it goes in all directions as far as that goes. But there are certainly examples of alliances between um, indigenous Americans and Africans. Yeah, it just and again, this maybe this is beyond the scope of your book, but it just makes me wonder how much common ground these two groups would have found apart from being both subjugated and, you know, and then there's some intermarriage. I wonder mm -hmm. in what other ways they they could find common ground um, mm -hmm. apart from simply fighting the Europeans, you know, because of co language differences, culture differences, that sort of thing. Interesting, you say apart from. I have a couple of responses to that. One, one is, uh, you know, I mentioned the Brazilian example, and there's a, a movement called the Santidade, uh, where uh, uh, they, they basically it's a kind of millenarian religious uh, movement which involves, you know, at times uh, fighting Europeans, but it's basically trying to establish a more egalitarian, perhaps, uh, society, but certainly a more open, inclusive society than what the uh, Portuguese are offering uh, in Brazil. And it, it is perceived on the part of the Portuguese to be basically designed to throw the Portuguese out. Uh, but they certainly have their own kind of vision of a better future that they're, that they're working for. Mm -hmm. uh, but what I was going to say also about this is, is that my book really is meant to be focused on war. And uh, part of me had a you know, I do actually think that war explains a great deal about, uh, you know, the whole patterns of interaction across the Atlantic. Uh, but uh, I'm, I, I don't, it's not really a comprehensive study of all aspects of life. I, I, you know, I, I, I hope it doesn't come across that way. So I, I did in a way, yes, how much did they, did they share? I mean, like, like you said, there's a great deal of intermarriage and, uh, you know, people of mixed ancestry grow. I mean, that, that, yeah, that uh, it, you know, uh, interactions are not entirely always defined by by military things. Uh, you know. Yeah. Okay. How did you do the research for this book, considering how much documentation would have been involved? Um, what did you do? Okay. Basically, I read other historical works, uh, uh, which was liberating for me uh, because I think you know academic training um uh really it does two things one is, is it it puts a huge premium on work on the archives and sort of find you know data that no one has ever found before uh and it also encourages you to read other historians work with a you know a critical eye trying to find what's missing in this uh in this person's work and uh, and and sort of defining yourself or justifying your work by saying oh i found a hole in somebody's somebody else's research and, and uh you know for a work like this um trying to proceed that way would have been ridiculous mm -hmm. uh and so basically what i was doing mostly was reading other people's work to 
you know, get as much as I could from it, uh, to, to, to read it entirely positively. Not, I mean, obviously I, you have to read it critically and be careful about, uh, um, what, uh, uh, you know, what you're reading, but mostly I, I wanted to, uh, yeah, I, I hoped I could, uh, you know, agree with and, uh, take advantage of the, you know, other people's research. Another thing that I, that, uh, um, you know, kind of, kept my attention as I was doing the research is I wanted to have, uh, you know, individual stories. I mean, this is very definitely, you know, designed to be a kind of history from the bottom up. Hmm. I'm, I'm more interested in sailors than I am in, uh, you know, officers. And, uh, and so I did quite a lot of reading of, uh, you know, sailors memoirs and, uh, and, uh, you know, tried as best I could to get, uh, similar kinds of, um, snippets of the life of ordinary um, soldiers, uh, and there are certainly a few uh, good diaries of soldiers as well. That, you know that uh, that are in there, as well as uh, stories that give you the the ordinary fighter's uh, perspective on what's happening. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then I guess the, the last thing I would say about this about my method is I was trying very hard, uh, as much as I could, to get African and uh, Indigenous American voices in the documents you know it's impossible to say well uh you know i'm going to give equal weight to every group because you know they just you can't be that uh, systematic about it but to get that inclusiveness through uh, you know each part of the book and you know that was definitely one of my aims mm-hmm. were there any notable archives that you used um that you went to for this research <laughs> I, I think I, I, that it shows that uh, uh, there's probably a little more Nova Scotia in the book than uh, than anybody else would put in there, and I guess that's drawing on my uh, my earlier research. But for the most part, this is a uh, yeah, a, a synthetic work uh, based on you know other people's work. You know, it's not it's not archivally uh, formed that way. What part of the research was most enjoyable for you? Actually, you know, as I as I said earlier, it's. Uh, you're usually kind of trained to be, you know, focused on and learn more and more about your own thing. And I really enjoyed being basically being required to uh, go beyond uh, what I knew before. And so, you know, when I was uh, researching Peru or, uh, uh, you know, or Chile, it was great. I mean, I I really enjoyed just uh, uh, learning things that I didn't know. I mean, literally, there's there's quite a lot in this book that uh, um, that I didn't know before. And uh, um, and it's a funny thing when you think when I'm thinking about people reading the book, I'm quite sure that there'll be uh, you know specialists in the various bits who that know a lot more than I do about them. But I don't think there are going to be very many people who know a lot about all of it. I think that, you know, people are going to learn things, uh, you know, in this book because, uh, because of the, just the whole scale of it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, uh, I, another thing that I enjoyed was there, it's, it's got a large number of illustrations and, uh, and I, yeah. it, I, I did enjoy, uh, tracking them down as well. It's interesting. You mentioned Peru and Chile because I did have it on my mind. Um, whether you extended that far in your discussion mm-hmm. of Atlantic Wars. Um, yeah. Because that's touching on the Pacific, but, you know. Right. Well, actually, that was, you know, that's something Atlantic historians generally do include all of Latin America, you know, as far north as California in the Atlantic world. And I'm not sure that uh, they often articulated why that's so. And uh, um, and it, it became 
pretty clear to me as I was doing this work, uh, you know, organizing the book the way I did, that the, the, the reason is because of that naval supremacy that the uh, Europeans have, which basically extends, at, you know, around the Americas, at least as far as uh, uh, California. Mm. It, 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 yeah, if you think about where do the Europeans control the ocean sort of without competition, that's it. And something else, I mean, this is related to another question that sort of ran through my mind as I was putting together the book. It's implicit in the book, I, I hope it comes across, that the Atlantic world is different from the Indian Ocean. And, uh, uh, you know, there, I think there's an old sort of way of thinking about uh, Atlantic history or imperial history that seems to think that this is the start of a pattern that spreads globally, which is true to a certain extent, but I think it's equally important to think of how distinctive the Atlantic is. And actually, you know, at the same time that I'm, you know, at the same period that I'm studying with the Atlantic, there are all sorts of other things happening in the Indian Ocean and, the, uh, you know, the Pacific off China, interactions between Europeans and uh, people there. And it's on a completely different basis uh you know that the the ability of asian people and to trade amongst themselves and uh and you know and, and develop infrastructure which is partly you know based on well it's based on a whole lot of other things the point is that the atlantic is different and i think the things that make the atlantic different apply going back to your question to chile and peru and even california was there was there a particular question and I know history has a lot of gaps um, that are hard to fill, but was there a particular question you really wanted to get an answer for and either did achieve uh, some sort of conclusion or you still would love to to figure something out? Okay, well, um, I think actually, to, to a certain extent, I think I am making a sort of couple of big pleas in the book. I don't think that, that, that it's I'm positioning myself as sort of having the definitive answer to a question, but I... Mm -hmm. I want to, uh, you know, basically convince people that war uh, mattered enormously. And I think that there's uh, certainly among a, a lot of historians that I've, you know, worked alongside a kind of idea that uh, military history is a kind of obscure specialization or, or you know, basically is something that, you know, soldiers are interested in. And, you know, that, that you know, I, 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 I had colleagues in uh, you know, various places who said, when we get to the Civil War, we just say the North won, and then they go on to well, whatever happened after 1865, and uh, and so so I guess I'm you know I'm thinking that, that I hope that my book will be read by people who you know I don't know the trouble is whether they'll read it, but the point is that the military things matter, and I and that's uh, uh, that you know that's certainly one of the things I want to push, and the other is um, you know that the Atlantic world is a coherent unit and that you really can't, for example, understand slavery if you don't think about simultaneously what's happening in, you know, all of the different uh, coasts of the Atlantic. Um, and um, and I guess, yeah, a final thing which really, I think, developed, it wasn't where I started doing the research, but this um, this shift at the end of the 18th century, which I think really is a something that's that's happening on an Atlantic scale and you can't understand why there were revolutions around the Atlantic in the late 18th century without thinking about what's happening in all parts of the Atlantic world, that that really does change things. That there, they, I do think that that's a major 
disjuncture, not just in military culture, but obviously in politics and in the relative power of uh, indigenous Americans, Africans, and Europeans. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned something that surprised you in your research. Um, was that, but what was the most surprising thing that you came across? You you mean on a large scale or a small scale? Um, Just uh, whatever struck you through the whole course of research, what struck you most is surprise. What what surprised you the most? Gave you that charge, like, wow, I didn't know that. (laughs) Or I didn't expect (laughs) that. Think about that. I think actually, I'm going to give you a very specific answer. I did not know, and and I think people who study these things closely did, that there were galleys in the Americas, you know, the the, uh, Havana actually deployed galleys, uh, you know, to guard the harbor against, uh, you know, English and French raiders and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. Um, So they actually brought rowers across the Atlantic to man their galleys. And they they appear in the, uh, uh, you know, in the records, but I, I think until I did this, wrote this book, I never really thought about that. And then I guess this goes back a little bit to your question about, you know, Mediterranean influences on the whole Atlantic world. There is, um, you know, th- th- there's a direct transferal of uh, practices. And uh, and, I, and actually, yeah, I think that that tells you a lot about the whole integrated nature of the Atlantic world. And also it, it brings it to my mind a question. I mean, I've been talking a lot about how sailing ships were really critically important for uh, European power, but they also had huge limitations. And if you think about, you know, why would you prefer to have a, a galley in your harbor? It actually tells you something about, uh, you know, where sailing ships are good and where sailing ships aren't so effective. Mm-hmm. But so, that's very specific. <laughs> uh, no, that's you know, I, I could give you a grander answer, but, uh, you know, maybe. No, that's a, that's a good answer. Um, so are you saying practices of the Mediterranean were transferred to the Caribbean or just up and down the Atlantic? Uh, um, Western Atlantic I, well, it's mostly in the Caribbean and it's part of the, uh, uh, you know, the protection, you know, that the, the whole, uh, you know, the, the, the Spanish Empire was very much, you know, centered on uh, protecting forts, uh, you know, coastal harbors, mm-hmm. uh, part, you know, partly to get the treasure fleet through to spain but uh um yeah it, it, yeah it's mostly it's mostly the spanish who are doing this in mm. yeah in the caribbean did um and i know this is you know history isn't necessarily emotional but was there anything you came across that had a either positive or negative emotional impact on you yeah they my second chapter which actually slightly worries me because it comes early in the book um it just describes the the life of sailors mm-hmm. and um it really, you know, to me, it's a just a uh, painfully sad set of stories. And it may be partly because of the nature of the, uh, of the journals I've been reading, but, uh, uh, the, you know, the life of a sailor in the 16th, 17th century, uh, just sounds like the worst thing, <laughs> almost the worst thing I could imagine. I mean, you know, re- down to, you know, having to work four hour shifts and uh, being under constant, I'm talking about life at sea, mm-hmm. uh, uh, um, you know, no privacy and, and being at the, uh, you know, under strict discipline and, uh, um, and not in control of where you're going and, uh, um, and, you know, uh, subject to, you know, outbursts of violence. And then did, did their, their status and, uh, you know, 
ability to uh, you know live well on land is extremely limited as well. I mean, they were subject to impressment in uh, lots of the ports, and uh, you know, very difficult to establish family life. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, describing these sailors, it's, I, it's just you know, and that is actually the chapter that, which is weird because it's not a chapter that's about killing. It's not you know, it's not about combat really. But uh, but I find it the, the, the sort of the most um, yeah the, the most difficult to deal with in a way. <laughs> mm-hmm. So so you have uh, talked about the things you hope the book will do, but um, can you uh, bring it all together and, and and describe what you hope a reader, apart from filling the historical gap, what what would you hope a reader will take away? Well, you know, I, I guess it's not ultimately the the takeaway isn't just about race though ultimately i think uh, uh you know a lot of it's a, it, you know it, it's a pretty clear part of the story from the beginning to end and uh you know race and violence and i so so you know if i'm thinking by about my book on its grandest scale it really is about the, a, a halting process it was not an immediate you know uh, uh, victory on the part of europeans and white colonists uh, and it matters that it took a long time for, uh, you know, the, the establishment of empires and nation states that, uh, uh, dominated the Atlantic, uh, you know, uh, reached its fulfillment. But basically the story I'm telling is the backstory to the establishment of European and, and national, the dominance of, of, you know, of nation states in, in the Americas and empires in in africa and uh and i guess the military dimension of that as as i was saying earlier is is a big part of why i mean it involved a rewriting of history it involved a sort of association of violence with those non-european groups Mm -hmm. and and i i guess you know really the story i'm telling is about everybody enmeshed in violence uh, in, you know, Europeans, Africans, and Indigenous Americans together for centuries before that sharper delineation, sort of, and political, you know, formalized political hierarchy uh, uh, took over in the 19th century. So, I guess if you would ask me about my, my grandest ambitions, when people really would look at this closely as, you know, basically our shared history that. Uh, yeah. So, and I think it's good to get and to go back. The way, the only way I think you can appreciate that is to break out of national narratives. To sort of, you know, this is not a U.S. colonial story. It's not an African history story. It's not a Indigenous American story. It's a story that's uh, happening, you know, across a, a you know a, a huge part of the world. So, um, Central and Eastern European countries. Um certain nations became very powerful, but were they, it seems like they wouldn't have been part of this story at all. At like maybe individuals, but not as, as national groups. Well, um, yeah, yeah. But in a way that, uh, yeah, I mean, there are Germans all over the Atlantic world, for example, but there isn't a sort of German state that's sending them across the Atlantic world. You go farther east than that, and then I think you're, you're right. The representation becomes much less. Um, you know, as I said, Denmark, you know, comes up a few times in my uh, uh, in the book. Uh, um, but uh, yeah, it was actually one of the yeah part of the point, I guess. Part of the argument I would want to make is that uh, yeah, there are national governments that are 
that are making you know allocations for military expeditions and so forth but uh, um, the forces they're sending especially the naval forces are uh, represent people from all over. They're not, uh, you know, the. I think it's the the fleet leaving Amsterdam, and less than half of the uh, sailors are are Dutch. Mm. So, uh, I mean, I guess part of the one thing that happens in the Atlantic world is that uh, the boundaries between uh, national groups in Europe become very amorphous, and uh, you know, that, that is, people are speaking all sorts of different languages on the ships. Mm-hmm. Did you have any difficulties getting the book finished or published? I no, I had a, a a contract. I actually, I I started thinking about this book in uh, something like 2008, and I sent out uh, uh, proposals, and then I got you know, I sent out a proposal on different things and got a you know a contract for a, a Quaker book about uh, Quakers, and then and then it's almost out of the blue that OUP years later uh, got back in touch with me and said have you you know have you working on this book and so mm-hmm. they basically encouraged me to pick it up again which I, it was, was now six or eight years ago so you know i was lucky i uh, they uh, you know they i had the publisher before i really you know intensely uh, intensely started working on what's your current or future writing projects i i have a whole you know, well i have probably about half a dozen ideas and i I, I haven't made up my mind what I'm going to do next. And I think it's partly because of what, of, of the scale of this book. And I don't think, I, I can, it seems sort of absurd to try and take on another thing, you know, multi centuries across half the globe, you know, as a next project. But, uh, you know, but I, I basically have to kind of decompress and, and rethink. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure what I'm going to do next. Can people find you on the web? Do you have a web page or social media to follow your works or thoughts? Um, no, I, no I, I, not really, no. Okay, that's fine. Um, I guess they can go to Oxford University Press to see details on the book. That's right, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? Nope. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, please subscribe to it and rate it and review it if possible. I have many other options as well to get great military history information. You can find links to interesting military history videos on my Facebook page, War Scholar. You can find links to interesting military history news articles, military history archaeology information, and academic information on my Twitter page, War Scholar. You can find photos on my Instagram page, Chris Alvarez War Scholar. You can find my military history videos on my YouTube page, WarScholar1945. You can also sign up for my newsletter at WarScholar.org or MilitaryHistoryPodcast.com. In the newsletter, I post additional video and news links, as well as regular updates on new military history books being published. Thank you for listening.